Uh, this afternoon, we're going to be in our text in Hebrews chapter 13, continuing uh, with this idea of growing in the greater than. So we're going to be continuing with part 10 of this section. Our focus will be verses 4 through 6 today. Um, however, let's go ahead and just because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Hebrews, let's go ahead and hear from the entirety of Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. But the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let us pray. Our Father, it is a joy and privilege to be able to hear your word and to be able to engage in your word and study its content and to learn from it and to grow by it through the work of your spirit and help us to receive what we have just heard as it is your word, your holy word, your voice to us, to believe it, to rest in it, to grow in it. 
Help us, O Father, that we might from the life you've given us seek to honor you in a life of thankfulness and to return to the cross when we oh so frequently find ourselves having fallen short. Lord, we ask that you'd work in each of us according to your purposes. Conform us to the image of your Son. In all things, help us to trust him. Would you rest upon this preacher? Would you chain him to the texture of your word that he might freely declare truth with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're approaching the home stretch of the book of Hebrews, again, home stretch doesn't mean that we're done in a couple of weeks. It'll probably be sometime into next year before we finish up uh, the book of Hebrews based on how things have been flowing. But this has been a wonderful study. It has been very enriching to my own personal life and thinking. And I pray that it has been as much to you as it has been to me. We've seen how Jesus is indeed the greater than, the greatest revelation, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than the priesthood, greater than any other sacrifice, being the greatest one. And how... By faith, we hold on to him, and that is where Christian life is lived, and that is our endurance, is holding on to him by faith. And now seeing the life that we are called upon to live by faith in Jesus Christ, in thankfulness for his great goodness to us. We've seen that we look to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and to receive from him, to not refuse his word and his truth. Last week, when we got into chapter 13, where we get into specific exhortations, not last week, last time, when we get into specific, got into specific exhortations, we saw the importance of brotherly love. Let it continue. And brotherly love is not always easy. We all have families and we all know how sometimes we get on each other's nerves. And even so in the body of Christ, even more so in the body of Christ, for we have bonds that are eternal and that are stronger and greater than even the bond of familial love. And that we are not to neglect hospitality to strangers. Recognizing that that is a difficult thing to do and sometimes might present scary things. We might, things might scare us about that, yet we must remember that in Christ we have been freed from the cruel ethic of self-preservation and self-interest because he has met our eternal needs. And to, and to be with one with those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel and mistreated since we are also, since we are also one in the body with them, united with all believers. The great connection all believers have. The great thing we have in common. And so thus we have empathy and sympathy with our brothers as though we are imprisoned and suffering with them. And now in verse 4 and 5 and 6, we move to two more exhortations, which in the Greek text is kind of difficult uh, to read because there is not a single verb in these exhortations. They are simply series of nouns, a verb being an action word, like uh, I walk, or in the form of exhortation, you must walk. What we have here is just simply says, uh, mar- uh, the marriage honorable, 
the marriage bed undefiled. Uh, free, uh, free from the love of money conduct. Those are the three exhortations. But they also communicate states of existence, especially this first one. And so it's translated here in the ESV and many other translations as an exhortation, but it's rooted in the fact that when it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, it's rooted in the fact that marriage itself is an honorable institution and so thus is to be regarded as honorable. That is, marriage is honorable, so let it be held in honor. In honor. And before we talk about what that is, there's this word that says among all. That's a phrase that is, in the Greek text, is kind of ambiguous as to what it's a, 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 of what it is speaking, because we could speak of it in terms of uh, by all or among all, or we could translate it in terms of in all things. That is, in relationship to everything related to marriage, let it be held in honor. And the context really doesn't tell us how it should be said. So I'm going to default to what I learned in seminary when that's the case, is to appeal to what we call semantic density or meaning density, meaning that if multiple things could be understood and the context doesn't tell us that one particular thing is there, let's, let's view it as all. So we look at it this way. Let marriage be held in honor among all in all things. That is, in all respects related to marriage, let it be held in honor. Indeed, marriage is an honorable institution. For marriage was created by God there in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, he created Adam and Eve. In his image, he created them. And he said, Go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He also said, uh, speaking of the creation, for this reason... A man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, indicating that it was a creation ordinance. Marriage is not unique to Christianity. There is things we are told as Christians to regard with regards to marriage and ways we are called to practice it. But marriage is a creation institution. Every single society and group of people has marriage in common we all have people marry they have family family is a creation institution it's not it's not a redemptive institution it's a creation institution it's a means by which god propagates the human race as well as guards and protects and now ways people view marriage can go way off base and go 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 astray and we are to regard be regard marriage in certain ways and that's part of holding it in honor and so it is to be held honorable in all respects and among all. One of my favorite services of matrimony is from the Book of Common Prayer. Now, the Book of Common Prayer is the Anglican uh, collection of readings and prayers that they hold in common together. Now, my favorite one knowing me, is not one from the 20th, the 21st, or even the 20th century, or the 19th century even. They've had multiple editions over the years. But I love the 1662 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. And listen to what it says about marriage as the opening words to the marriage ceremony. Marriage is commended in Hebrews, that says in Paul, but saying here in Hebrews, because I'm still not convinced Paul's the author yet. 
But marriage is commanded in Hebrews to be honorable among all men and therefore is not to be enterprised nor taken in hand inadvisedly, lightly or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding. Don't you just love that language? But reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. Notice what it describes there, and we'll talk more about what it says, uh, other things it says. But it, it says here that marriage is to be treated by those entering into it, not with flippancy, not with a, a sense, of, a, a sense of, of carelessness, but rather with great care, with great respect, with great circumspection, with great sense of diligence. And also note it states that the other partner... And likely in the historical context that was written, the female is not to be regarded as but an object to satisfy a man's lusts. As if he were but a brute beast with no understanding. Add to that, it is also true based on other biblical ideas, that the, the wife is not to be regarded as a slave to tend to every whim of a husband. She is not a slave. If we think, if we think that this is influenced by modern feminism, please take note that this was written in 1662. Those purposes are further laid out in, in, in its writing. It says, first, it was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin to avoid fornication that such persons as have not the gift of continency, that's celibacy. Might, might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. So the three purposes it lays out. Making more people. Procreation. Number two, as, uh, as, an, avenue to, as an avenue to avoid sin, in particular fornication. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I would rather you remain single, but if, you, if you're burning with passion, then marry. And thirdly, for the mutual comfort and benefit and help of the, of, of the parties in marriage, in both times of adversity and in times of comfort. How we regard marriage is extremely important. Patently obvious is that we regard marriage rightly as between one male and one one female and that we rightly struggle because we had this discussion a a few weeks ago that we rightly struggle with whether to attend it but not celebrate a wedding of a dear loved one who is doing such. That struggle is right whether or not we should do Christians should struggle with that. It should not be easy for us to go to such a thing. And while we must struggle with that in our own in our interests of culture and such, let us not think we are doing right when celebrating the union 
of, one, of a man and a woman in a heterosexual marriage where there is a trail of unlawful divorces and infidelity. If we don't struggle with going to that, but we struggle with going to the other, we are being hypocritical and inconsistent. Because such things are an affront to the institution of marriage. If we are not struggling with whether to attend such a wedding, we are dishonoring marriage. Let us, let us not let our cultural concerns cause us to legitimize things we must not legitimize. Let's consider Ephesians chapter 5 in regards to um, honor, in regards to a couple, a, a married couple honoring marriage in their own marriage, which we dealt with this when we walked through the book of Ephesians, but it's always good to hear. Sorry, in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body as himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And in First Peter chapter 3, uh, we see that uh, when we read that, we also see that the husband is to regard his wife as a co-heir with Christ. As a co-heir with Christ. Indicating she has her own relationship with Christ that is not dependent upon his. <clears throat> and it says for, for wives to submit to their husbands. Inasmuch as a husband does not command them to sin. A wife is under no obligation to sin if a, if a husband commands her to sin. But to the men, I must say, from reading them this, a wife is not our slave or a toy to satisfy our lusts. We do not, we have no rights in this passage. There are only duties and obligations regards to God and what he has commanded. That duty is to love our wives as Christ loved the church. What does that look like? It does not look like being a dictator. It looks like serving and sacrificing. That means laying down our dreams, our hobbies, many goals we might have for the good of our families, for the good of our wives. A man who sacrifices himself for ministry and missions and lays himself down for such while his household lays in ruins because he neglects his home for such things. 
should, does not, is not fit for the title of minister or missionary. A man who spends tens of thousands of dollars to soup up his boy toy vehicle while his wife struggles to keep the house in repair and fed is not a man but a boy with facial hair. A man who pours himself into other people but neglects his own household is not a husband but a boy. Such dishonors marriage. And I address the men here because as the heads of households, to quote for, uh, to quote <clears throat> President Truman, the buck stops with us. We don't get to... <clears throat> there are people, cowardly, spineless business people and politicians who blame their staff for their failures. Husbands don't get to do that. We don't get to blame our wives or our children for our failures. If we do so, we are dishonoring marriage. Do we want to know what biblical manhood and husbandhood is? This is what it is. Serving and sacrificing while taking responsibility for our own actions and failures. It's not about watching football or ultimate fighting championships, being a muscular gym bro, having a high tea count, eating meat. Those are those th- are things people can do. But that's not the definition of being a man or a husband. It's about serving and sacrificing, laying one's life down for the good of others and for a husband, his wife, and such honors marriage. Those other things are ancillary, subordinate to, and unnecessary to being a man and a husband. Now he moves on to talking about another aspect of honoring marriage, and it has to do with dishonoring the marriage bed, in which he says, let the marriage, the marriage bed undefiled, or let the marriage bed be undefiled. And again, marriage is to be held in honor among all and by all, and the, uh, in all things and by all. And then it also says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous sexually immoral. There is best translated as fornication. Those who engage in relations outside of the bonds of marriage. So for for marriage to be honored, it means the marriage bed to be undefiled has to do with, first of all, not necessarily. First of all, married people being faithful to one another. And not defiling the marriage bed. Secondly, for those who are unmarried. To not engaging in sexual relations outside of the bounds of marriage. That is to honor marriage. Now, you might say, well, I've I've already done all those things. There is great forgiveness. There is also calls to repent and to turn. But it is also... When we look at the seventh commandment, while the act, the actual act of infidelity is the pinnacle of violation, everything that leads up to it is forbidden. 
any sort of strained thoughts would be dishonoring of the marriage bed. Or consider the spouse who other than, other than to a trusted counselor goes and to their family or their friends and blabs and talks about all, all how terrible their spouse is. That, my friends, is dishonoring and is unfaithful to one's spouse. And say, so, well, they're my family. Yeah, you've left and cleft. Any sorts of things such as pornography or all things related to that dishonor the marriage bed and it's to be kept holy. And dishonoring marriage is violations of the seventh commandment. Considering also that marriage points us to Christ and his relationship to the church, that marriage is a living illustration of that. To honor marriage is to immerse oneself in the life of the church and to immerse one's family in that life and to engage in fellowship with other believers who may not be at our place in life would mean that we don't regard those who are unmarried as lesser believers. They're not. Or uh, rather fully including them in the life of the body. We must not get into the trap that we can only have fellowship with those who are in our place in life. That is, they're our, they're, they're our age. They're our marital status. They have the same number of kids, the same age of kids, going through the exact same homeschool curriculum or through the same private school curriculum. Those are the people I can have fellowship with. And I say that's poppycock. Because at the root of it, every believer is dealing with the same basic struggles. Resting in Christ as we seek to live for him. And honoring marriage is important in all things, by all, is important because God judges the adulterer and the fornicator. That is, we are no longer, you and I, if we're in Christ, we are no longer on the side of God's wrath. And to engage in those things is, first of all, to say we're going to identify with those old things. We also place ourselves under the disciplinary hand of God. And so those married must carry out their married lives honorably, avoiding adultery and carrying out their relationships well and turning to the Father in Christ Jesus, by the Spirit, when we so often fail. And recognizing the purpose for marriage. And for those not married, waiting for marriage, or those whom God has called to remain unmarried, like the Apostle Paul, or our Lord Jesus, for that matter, during his life on earth, per 1 Corinthians 7, are to honor marriage by not engaging in, in sexual relations outside of the bonds of marriage. And so even we even men and women whether we're married or not are called upon to conduct ourselves in ways that are honorable. And doing so honors what it is to be a man and a woman and indirectly honors marriage. He then moves on to another command. 
which is translated here in the ESV as keep yourselves from the love of money. Uh, best translated as, or literally word for word translated as the not loving money way. Now, how do in the world do we put that into English? You have an adjective, the not loving money, and you have, have a noun, way or manner. Uh, Lutheran commentator I like to read, uh, Gordon Lenski, he, sa- he says, tra- he, he likes to put it this way, the non, non-silver loving the conduct. Or another way to do it is to quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, keep yourselves from the love of money. Is that is, is very similar to the same idea. First uh, Timothy chapter six verse ten, and we're going to return to this idea, return to this passage again. But for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We might have heard that phrase before. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The origin of that is not some hippie from the 1960s. The origin of that is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God said that. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And sometimes we as Christians in union with some cultural interests may in ways have been duped into making virtues out of vices. One of those that I've seen held up as a virtue is the accumulation of wealth for its own sake. Look at our thinking. How often do we assume that a wealthy person is doing something right and the poor person who's working and paying their rent, but they're just basically making buy and they, they would be regarded as poor, are ungodly. How often do we make that assumption? You see, we live in a culture that idolizes wealth and sows discontentment. How many get-rich schemes do we see out there? Or talking heads telling us, well, this should motivate you so that you too can become filthy rich. That is discontentment and that is blasphemous poppycock. Sorry, I've been watching some British people. We've been deceived if that is our assumption. It's not to say that it can't be true in individual circumstances. It goes both ways. Wealth, while it's not evil in and of itself, the human heart turns it into a vicious and awful vice. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We cannot serve both God and wealth. It's one or the other. Even if one has wealth, Paul says he is not to cherish it or hoard it, but to be rich in generosity and sharing. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, 
so that they make hope they may take hold of that which is truly life covetousness my brothers and sisters is idolatry to hoard and to hold what god has given us when god has commanded otherwise is actually to vi- to engage in violating the eighth commandment you shall not steal we'll talk more about that in a moment but each commandment remember has both positive don't do and negative don't do and positive elements which is do You may have heard of something called ambition. Ambition is not a virtue. Amb- ambition is a vice that is condemned by Paul in his in the scriptures. Now, what I'm not supposed to have drive or purpose. Ambition is not drive or purpose. Ambition is the drive to advance one's self. Further and further and further. But Christian life is not about advancing oneself. It's about laying our, It's about being servants for the sake of others. My wife and I got some very difficult news. Not tragic, but difficult. Uh, we have a favorite restaurant. Chains down in San Diego. That Donna loves going to. They, uh, you know, as you know, she eats a plant-based diet, and they serve plant-based comfort food. So you can get a Reuben, and you can get things like a a, a chicken-ish sandwich. Well, they were do- the company was doing really, really well. Small company, eight, eight locations around the country, and the owner was doing well and was being provided for. Housing bills paid. The owner owner wanted more. And went on a massive expansion campaign. And it was with regret that we learned that yesterday was the company's last day of operations. They wanted too much. We must be aware that we don't want too much. Now there's a there's a cure all for this money love. For this lust for silver. And it's this. Be content with the present. Be content with the present of what you have. Contentment with whatever little God has given or left us is the cure-all for money love. All worry about money and the like, Gordon Lenski says. Let's return to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll read verses 6 through 10. Which he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So you hear, see, the apostle says that desiring to be rich is a fool's errand. Not that riches are evil. But the desire for it is leads to things for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
We all, uh, sometimes we might regard those as who don't have much, who maybe want to improve their situation, and might say, well, they're being discontent. And there's a sense where that may very well be true. But it's not just those who don't have much who may want to have a more financial security, but also those who have much and who hold on to it as if there's nothing else to hold on to. Such as lack of contentment or the one who has more than they could ever want in life and says, I must have more and more and more and more and more. Contentment is in recognizing that we brought nothing into the world and will leave with nothing. This means that the one who hoards to himself and quests for more and more and more has a love for money that leads to all kinds of evil. Or even when we have modest provisions, regard as what we have as belong. When we have modest provisions, we must regard what we have as belonging to God, not us. And remember. Then Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. We must not stop there, though, because he goes on to say, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That is what God has given us is not just for us, but for the benefit of his people, for the benefit of those around us in as much and as long as our own families are cared for. And so here's the truth. If we've got clothes for our body and food in our belly, Paul says that's enough. Even having a roof over our head, that is enough. That's plenty. Why is this so important? We're going to see the reason and basis for it in just a moment. It has everything to do with the glorious and wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why is this important? Lenski, again, says of this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, we find another reason for this admonition. And we'll read that just so we can have it fresh in our minds. For you have had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he says we find another reason for this admonition. A good many of the readers had suffered severely by having their homes robbed and wrecked during the persecutions of the year 64 and were thus in a bad state financially. Hence the admonition offered here is coupled with the strongest comfort and assurance. But let, let's look a little bit beyond money and possessions. Maybe we long for power and influence. Such things carry the same danger as the love for riches. Rather, being content with that which God has placed us in, in what God has placed us. Or... Maybe we long for a bygone era that we think was much better than ours and wish we were alive in a different time. 
First of all, to think that a bygone era was better than ours is probably wrong-headed because it's colored by the lenses of nostalgia, which is an extraordinarily powerful hallucinogen. It's very powerful. Secondly, who has placed us in the time in which we live? With whom are we discontent when we state that? It's not fate, but the God of the universe. Or consider, and as I say this, we're entering into a period of time that happens every few years in our own particular society that I absolutely do not enjoy. I do not like presidential election season. In part, from the seat in which I sit because of the hand-wringing many Christians will be doing over the next year during such an election season. The hand-wringing and the fretting and the worrying. Oftentimes fed by talking heads on the television or on the internet. Brothers and sisters, all is not lost if their guy wins and all is not lost if our guy wins, whoever our guy and their guy may be. And I myself, one of the reasons I really struggle with these times is I refuse to look at life through the lenses of right and left or conservative and liberal. There's far more to life than that. And there's all sorts of, I like to look, I, I look at life through the lens of biblical revelation, which means if you really knew my views, Whether you were left or right, you'd be angry with me. So, brothers and sisters, our contentment is what we have in Christ, not what the culture in which we live is. And notice I didn't say our culture. Because God has created a new people, a new race, a new ethnicity, a new culture in Christ Jesus. That is our culture. So let's quit the hand-wringing and be about the business of resting in Christ and loving God and neighbor in our ordinary circumstances. We've been deceived if we find ourselves hand-wringing about such things. We say, but that is so hard. And I agree. I agree. It's terribly hard. It's difficult because we live in this present age and we're so tied to things and tied to all this. It's so hard. We say, I just struggle with it so much. But brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit has not left us just with, he did not say, say, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with the present and just leave us there. Rather, he continues And tells us something. But gives us a reason for it. And is rooted in God's love for us. In Jesus Christ. With these wonderful and glorious words. He will never leave us. Or forsake us. Why is it we can be content? Because he will never leave us. Or forsake us. Never. Means never. 
God is always with us in Jesus Christ. These are wonderful and glorious words. How do we know that he will never leave us or forsake us? What evidence do we have of that? What evidence do we have of that? Whether or not we are experiencing some sort of abundance and God has blessed us with abundance or God has chosen to bless us with difficulty. And yes, difficulty, because of what it works, is a blessing from God. It's usually just in hindsight that we see it. How is it that we know that? From a scripture we read earlier today in the service. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know it. That is, even though the world and the devil take all our belongings from us, we have far more riches than the richest man in the world and all of his $250 billion. We have Christ and the promise of an eternal inheritance. In fact, this is going to bear even more significant in in coming passages in our section. We need to see that we need to be as eternally focused as we can and less on this age and our eternal and our present circumstances because of what is done for us. He then quotes from Psalm 118 verse 6. In Psalm 118 verse 6, we see a celebration of God's victory for his people that the whole psalm is a celebration of that and it says the Lord is on my side I will not fear what can man do to me. And this is a grand celebration of the good things God has done for his people in, a, in the psalm of ascent, which is ascending up, to the, ascending up the temple steps, celebrating the exodus, but is also looking forward to a greater exodus. Matter of fact, this particular psalm is messianic. It points to Jesus Christ. Psalm 118, verses 9 through 25 Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. What pa- We've heard the song, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. What is the day the Lord has made? The day of his deliverance. The day of Exodus was that day for God's, for Israel. And for us in Christ Jesus, that day of deliverance was the day of resurrection. That day which is mark, which we mark this day, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, which marks his salvation for us. Because of our redemption, we have all this. We know that God is for us and working for us and on our behalf. And through the death, resurrection, an ascension of Jesus Christ, we have this assurance. Yahweh is our helper and he is for us. And so thus we have every reason to be content resting in Christ. So when we look to God in Christ Jesus, we have this truth. He's given us everything we need so we can be content. 
But what do we do when we're not content? Which is pretty much all the time. We run to Jesus. We partake of his means of grace. I want to close with these words from Romans 8, verse 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we be content. Let us pray. Blessed be your most holy name, our Lord, who has done for us all that we need, who has done for us that which we could not do for ourselves. Who is to, uh, in Christ Jesus, who lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead for us. We pray you would help us to live grateful lives, seeking to honor marriage in all respects, and that we might, O oh Lord, be content in all things. And we ask that you would help us to hold on to you. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.